After working with horror legend Wes Craven on his film The Last House on the Left, along with inspiration from John Carpenter's classic horror movie Halloween, Sean S. Cunningham decided to craft his own nightmarish vision on the big screen. Working with a relatively small budget, alongside a group of mostly unknown actors and armed with a script from Victor Miller, Cunningham started putting together the pieces of a film that would change the slasher genre forever, and he would make every kid terrified to go to summer camp. Set against the backdrop of a resort that housed a terrible secret, a group of camp counselors arrived to get the place ready while also acting out on their own carnal desires until a body count starts rising with a mysterious killer cutting them down one by one. Friday the 13th. You may only see it once, but that will be enough. Friday, the 13th. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to make sure there's no promiscuous sex and then kill, 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 kill. As we review the 1980 horror classic, Friday the 13th. Kevin Bacon, I mean Damon Martin, <laughs> and I'm uh, uh, Betsy Palmer. I mean Patrick Aaron. <laughs> I just throw you off my Kevin Bacon right there. So a little bacon here. <laughs> it's bacon time. I, we haven't had Kevin Bacon on anything, right? This is his uh, first appearance on the show. Yes, it is. It is his first first film of his we reviewed. He's not done a ton of horror. He has done some. Uh, of course, this was his start. Of course, Friday the Thirteenth, the original in 1980, and uh, yeah, he's still doing horror. He's done a couple. He did a horror movie, a very forgettable one last year that was on Peacock. I'd rather not talk about that one. Um, but yeah, this is this is our first time talking about the bacon. Yeah, hey, hey, Kevin. I know he's a big fan of the show, so I of just want to say hi, Kev. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting for these last few years. A hell of a guy, and uh, Damon, it's a hell of a night because uh, of this. This episode drops on the very anniversary that Friday the Thirteenth was released in theaters. We're doing an anniversary show, basically, and it's perfect because, uh, as some of you may know, and I know Damon knows very well, Friday the Thirteenth is absolutely my shit. That's my slasher. That's my classic horror. That's the one that I latch onto. That I've watched every single one probably more times than I should have at an age much earlier than I should have. And, uh, and here we are talking tonight, the very first one we've talked about two, three, and four, and those are fantastic movies, but we've never gotten to the first one. Well, the anniversary is here and we figured no better time to talk about Friday the 13th than tonight. Yeah. So as we were trying to figure out what episode we were going to do next, we were kind of figuring out, trying to think of what we were going to do. And I started looking at anniversaries and I looked at next, I looked at the day this episode's coming out and I was like, you know, what comes out? Friday the 13th came out on this day in 1980, and it was like perfect. It was like a light bulb went off in our heads. Now, I almost, I'll be honest, Patrick, I almost didn't want to do the intro this week. I almost wanted to just hand it off to you 
even though it's tradition, I do the intro because this is your series. We've done, we did all the Nightmare on Elm Street films. It has been well documented. Nightmare on Elm Street is my thing. That is my series. That is my franchise along with Scream. I kind of hold both of them in very high regard. One for my, for my youth and one for more of like my, you know, teenage and, and later years when I kind of got back into horror. This one is you. Friday the 13th is all you. Now, to be fair, I have learned to actually like a lot of the Friday the 13th movies mostly from reviewing them on this show and talking to you about them because I was not a big Friday the 13th guy. You are. So this is your thing. And I know we haven't done the entire franchise. We've done a lot of the films in the franchise, but this is the original. This is the OG. This yes, this is, this is the inflection point. This is when it all kicked off. And, uh, yeah, it's it's special and I love and I put a post up on, on Instagram. I was like, I love being able to dig into that box set. I got the Scream Factory box set of all the Friday the thirteenths and Freddy versus Jason, because as we determined on this show, Freddy versus Jason is a Freddy movie. It's okay. It's got Jason in it, fucking rules, kicks ass. But yeah, I love digging into that box and getting into one of the movies every now and then. And it was a perfect time to go down memory lane. And truth be told, as much as I love this series, I don't visit the first one as often as I do the other ones for very good reason. I think you you can tell why. And I think most people, spoiler alert, folks, this movie's 40 something years old at this point. <laughs> Jason's not in this movie. Jason has nothing to do with the first Friday the 13th. Every horror fan that listens to this probably knows that. And if you're surprised, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm glad that we've revealed that to you here on this show. Jason has nothing to do with the first movie other than being a motive somewhere in the background for the killer who is Pamela Voorhees. Um, yeah. This time around, Damon, boy, we always we talk about this often because we we will every now and then go over films that we truly be, are truly beloved to the both of us. But we we hadn't looked at them with what we are calling our podcast eye, um, th this more critical eye that we have developed over the last few years, because now we really dive into what make good horror films. Well, this is one of the ones, one of the very seminal horror films. You've got Texas Chainsaw back in uh, 74. You've got halloween in 78 you've got friday the 13th in 80 and then you've got uh, uh nightmare on elm street 84 these were the big four these were the ones that kind of changed everything and we're finally getting to the last one we're finally getting to friday the 13th finally and it's really important and, it, and i and i and i was a little nervous because i was like okay this is mine this is my big shit this is my this is my franchise what if it's not what i thought it was it's not what I thought it was for better and for worse. Like, it, it, I, I don't think this movie sucks, by the way. I'm just, I'll say that right off the top. I don't think this movie sucks. It's just so different than I remember. And I'm curious to see before we kind of get into my overall feelings about the movie, like, you know, this is not your one of your top things. So, so going through this original movie, what were your original reactions to it? So it's really funny because when we decided to do this for the review, I, I'm not kidding when I said I thought about just kind of like just kind of like perusing the highlights for the good kills and everything. So I was like, I know this movie. I've seen it. I've seen it five or six times. I knew this movie. I was like, I remember some key moments in the film. I remember the big, you know, the big reveal that everyone talks about with, with Mrs. Voorhees. I remember the ending. I was like, you know, I'll, I'll, maybe I just need to watch the highlights. Now, truth be told, I never just watch the highlights. I always rewatch the entire film. So, of course, I was always going to do this. But I was like, eh, I can have it on. You know, I can watch it and just kind of like, you know, just watch. I just like I don't need to watch it with a critical eye. I know this movie, right? Like, I know this movie. 
So I sat down and watched it, and I was like, I don't really know this movie uh, because I hadn't <laughs> seen it in like 15 years. And my recollection of Friday the 13th was far different than the actual movie Friday the 13th that I that I watched you know years ago. Primarily, and just to get right into it, Patrick, primarily the Mrs. Voorhees of it all because she plays such a prominent role in the ending that we all remember. And of course the big, you know, there's the scream moment, in the first scream when the killer's asking Casey Becker, you know, of course, Drew Barrymore, uh, shout out to, uh, to an ally in the uh, WGA, Drew Barrymore, uh, the, that she was, uh, that he's like, you know, who was the killer in Friday the 13th? She says, Jason, Jason, it's Jason. I saw the movie 20 goddamn times. And he goes, no, it's Mrs. Varhees was the original killer. That's the big twist in the original, you know, in the original, uh, Friday the 13th. Jason, as you said, has nothing to do with it. And a little side note to that, and I, of course, you know, I know you know this. The end scene with uh, the girl in the boat when the the zombie Jason pops out of the water, and then of course we learn that it's you know her her nightmare. It's not real. That was all added at the end. They had no intention mm-hmm. of that being in the movie. That was not part of the script. They added that in at the very end of filming, and that's the only reason that's in there. Like, shouldn't we see Jason? And that literally spawned the franchise because otherwise it was never supposed to be about Jason. It was about Jason's mother seeking revenge for him. So, like, the entire Jason franchise was really predicated on a a scene that really wasn't even supposed to be in the film. I digress. What's so interesting about this film, like I said, one thing, again, I totally did not remember how little Mrs. Voorhees was in this film. That was first and foremost. I was shocked to remember that I was like an hour and 10 minutes into an hour and 35 minute movie and she hadn't been in it. And I was like, why do I remember? Mm-hmm. Like I thought in my head, I could have swore she was like there fairly present throughout the whole movie. And then the big reveal that she was the killer. I, I swear I didn't remember that she was barely in the movie. And then the film itself, and we'll get into diving into the entire thing, you know, from the good, the bad and the ugly, but the last 20 minutes, once once Mrs. Voorhees shows up, once Betsy Palmer shows up, this is this is honestly one of the best slasher, creepiest slasher films ever. But the first hour and 10 minutes, I sat there thinking, why do I not remember this being like this kind of dull? Like I was kind of like, this is kind <laughs> of a dull movie. Like it's not nearly as like intense as I remembered it being in my head. And I think that's me. And this is this is no fault of the movie, Patrick. This is a fault of my own that I was thinking that Mrs. Voorhees was in it the entire time. I don't know why I had right. it in my head that she was in like an hour of this hour and a half movie. She's in twenty minutes. I kind of forgot I, that. I, I'd like, it's like I blocked it out of my head or something. I didn't have quite the same thing, but there was some weird like Mandela effect where I was like, no, she, you see her at the beginning of the movie, you meet her and then she's kind of not in the movie and then she's in the movie again. That's how I always kind of remember it. That's never the case. <laughs> she's not in the movie at all until she's in the movie at the end. It's it's pretty wild. You know, she's just, we just see the POV, which by the way, they don't even, they don't pretend they blatantly ripped off Halloween. Yeah. The, the whole impetus for Friday the 13th was, uh, Sean S. Cunningham, who was the director, uh, he had made a few small films. Some of them were essentially softcore porn, and he made a couple of like half legit, tiny little, just nothing films. Um, and then he he convinced this uh, this company to to fund this this horror movie for him because he just wanted to make a ripoff of Halloween. He was like, "That's crazy successful. People love it. Let's just do that." I, he t- he told uh, he told the, the the screenwriter Victor Miller, 
just rip it off. I, I don't care. Like, I mean, he literally did not give a shit. They were, they were micro budget indie filmmakers. They thought they were just going to cash in quick. They didn't know they had a giant franchise on their hand. They frankly didn't even care. They just said, let's rip it off. So what you get for most of the movie is just this stalking POV of the killer. Um, and, and, and which is, which is a complete ripoff of Halloween because that the very, the very beginning, the Michael Myers, uh, POV shot very famously done, you know, forget about it. Like really iconic stuff. Um, but they, they accidentally set themselves uh, apart. And why this franchise, I in my opinion, became one of the big four was because they hired a, a little known guy named Tom Savini to do the effects. Tom Savini was this weirdo out of Pennsylvania <laughs> who came in with his truck and his buddy and they, uh, they hung out the entire time and they stayed embedded with the with the whole crew. They all camped out at this Boy Scout camp and shot it all there on location. And this crazy psycho Tom Savini, he wanted to try all his tricks the best he could. My criticism of Halloween was that, you know, I, I'm not the biggest Halloween guy, but the kills are pretty tame. It's basically just a guy sticking a knife in people. There's a couple of scenes that are a little intense, but it's not the kills in that aren't that crazy. Because Tom Savini comes in to this Halloween ripoff and says, what if we got real fucked up with it and just showed a throat get sliced right open or an arrow go right through somebody's throat? He's big on throats. He's like, let's really show it. I got all these little tricks. I want to try them out here. And Sean Cunningham and, and company were smart enough to go, yeah, let's let this psycho guy do this stuff. And they spent the time making their kills count. Their, the kills in this movie at the time were so outrageous, they couldn't get one reviewer to say a good thing about it other than this is a disgusting piece of trash because they're, it's like a snuff film. Because movies didn't go like that. The hardest movie at the time, the movie that really went with any gore in any period of time during then was Alien. That was the goriest movie that you could find anywhere in mainstream film. And so these little indie filmmakers come in, they got Tom Savini with them, they got barely half a million bucks um, to do this, they shoot this thing and they make these kills interesting because you're right. This movie, and I have this in my notes, it starts out really mundane. <laughs> it's actually like overly mundane. And I was like, Jesus, like the first 30 minutes of this movie are boring. Like they just are, they're not that interesting. And it's like, it, it to me, it reminded me very much of like 70s filmmaking like like it was still kind of a holdover from all of that where it's like yeah let's just watch some young good looking people like romp through the woods that'll be fine no it's not that here's actually the problem with it truth be told it was all plot and no theme so all that mundanity that's happening in those first 30 minutes where, where it's these camp counselors like there's no theme attached to what they're doing they're just doing things yeah and so it comes across as pretty flat the one thing they did right is at the beginning of the movie, you meet a, a girl that's hitchhiking towards Camp Crystal Lake, and I believe her name is Annie. Well, Annie is the cook who's supposed to be the cook for Crystal Lake. She gets murdered at the beginning, near the beginning of the movie. So you know that this girl who's on her way to work at the camp with all these counselors is dead because of somebody who's probably headed their way. Without that, that first 30 minutes would be um, unbearable. They, they just would be, it's so boring and wacky and goofy and bad dialogue. And, you know, again, it's, it's a, it's a product of its time. So I'm not judging it that harshly, but it, there wasn't anything really interesting going on other than these young, good looking kids. Right. And that was, that was about it. 
And so, uh, again, this movie became an icon because of those crazy kills. And you talked about the ending. Well, no one, no one from Sean S. Cunningham to Victor Miller to uh, I think it's Ron or Ron, yeah, Ron Kurz, who who Shadow wrote uh, part of the movie. Um, none of them can agree on who came up with it, but they basically they finished the movie and they were like, I don't think we have an ending. Like, okay, we beheaded Mrs. Voorhees, and then the cops show up. Is that is that the ending? And somebody, no one can decide. No, no, none of them, none of them can agree on who came up with it. They said, let's let's make Jason come out of the water and grab her, and it'll just be a great jump scare. They call they call it a chair jumper. I think is what they kept calling it. And that chair jumper, when they were tech, tech, when they were going through screenings, it made everybody in the theaters jump out of their seats. Now I remember I I watched this movie maybe once every you know year and a half, and it's on and uh, I'm watching it. And my wife, who has seen it before, she was in the room while while, while little Alice is just laying in the boat with the peaceful music going. And then when Jason comes out, my wife fucking jumped a mile in the air. <laughs> It's it works. It's yeah. a really it works. And they and they unwittingly created a reason to have a sequel. This is like this film is so unique in this space because we've talked before when we've done Halloween films. You know, I have a I just an, a huge adoration for Halloween three season of the witch. It's a very controversial film amongst Halloween fans. Some people like myself absolutely love it. And then the hardcore Michael Myers people are like, fuck that movie. Uh, because it's the one Halloween film that has nothing to do with Michael Myers. I would argue Halloween ends is also a film that has nothing to do with Michael Myers, but yeah. that's neither here nor there. Um, sorry. Screw you, David Gordon green. Um, <laughs> we haven't gone three podcasts in a row without you giving David Gordon green some shit. I think it's because the, the, the news about the exorcist remake has been out there. And so it's just reminded me how much I disliked Halloween ends. Um, anyway, sorry, I don't mean to go off, off course here. Um, but yeah, like this film stands alone in so many different ways because this is a film that is, it is zero plot until the last 20 minutes when you meet Mrs. Voorhees and she tells you why she's going on this murderous rampage. And that's when things really ratchet up and get creepy. And two, the, the focus is the kills. It has nothing to do with anything else. There's no real story in the first hour and tw 10 minutes of this movie. It's just kids getting killed and creatively so. And that's just a, it was a unique take because, you know, when you think of Halloween, it was Michael Myers, you know, you, you got the intro with this little boy who kills his sister and, you know, you, 15 years later, he breaks out of jail or breaks out of the, the mental ward and now he's killing people again. He's gone back to his old neighborhood. You know, the, you know, Michael comes home, uh, the boogeyman comes home. That's like that very simple, very simple, but very effective plot. Now on Elm Street, same kind of thing. Freddy Krueger, child murderer, you know, freed on the Technica. We all know that. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, I mean, that's not the deepest in plot at the beginning, but you, but it's scary and terrifying because you're out in these backwoods and, and the creepy hitchhiker and then, of course, going to the house. And we've done that review, my favorite scene, of course, when, when Leatherface pops out for the first time and just blocks that dude with a freaking sledgehammer. Um, you know, I love the, the, a mallet or whatever he hits him with. Like, that's just a, a great scene and then just sets you up for the last 45 minutes or 40 minutes of that film, which are just, just utterly brilliant and terrifying and whatever. This film is weird because you really don't have any frame of reference for what's happening. There's just kids going to a camp and they're getting killed. Like, the very opening scene in 1958 is a couple of kids 
making out and having sex and they get murdered. You don't know why they get murdered. You don't find out anything about this until years later or until, you know, until the end of the film, basically. We're just like two kids get killed. And then when Annie shows up at the, at the truck stop or at the diner, and she's just like, I'm yeah. looking for a looking for a ride to Camp Crystal Lake, and everyone kind of ooh, like they all kind of like get that like you know d- yeah. like deer in the headlights look, and like why are you going to Camp Blood? And that's where you hear Camp Blood for the first time, which was actually part of the original title of this film was mm-hmm. Camp Blood. They changed it to Friday the Thirteenth later. Um, but like there again, we heard about like ooh, there's like this spooky camp and it's being reopened, but we just again, there's no story. In this first like hour of the film, it's just random kids showing up to be counselors, and then eventually them getting murdered. Now I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying like it's just funny because there's no setup. You really the setup to this entire film does not pay off until the last twenty minutes at all. Yeah, I'm, and I, mean, I think and like, I think I that's why ag- I would half agree. Well, I think that's why I had it in my head that that, that Mrs. Voorhees was in the film longer. Right. Because in my head, I'm thinking, okay, she said, like, in, I swear to God, this is like you said, the Mandela effect. I swear to God in my head, the girl Annie, who is supposed to be the cook for the camp, gets murdered. And in my head, I thought Mrs. Voorhees shows up and takes her place, and she's there the entire time. And we just think oh, she's, wow. like, part. Like, I had it in my head that she was there the, yeah. like, not the entire time, but, like, for the biggest majority of the movie. And then, because, just a little inside baseball here, before we did this, before we did the podcast, I texted Patrick and I said, hey, what do you think about adding in uh, our favorite twist in a movie? Because Mrs. Voorhees being revealed in the, in the, in, as the killer, in my head, was, like, a good twist. The reason I said that, Patrick, was because in my head, she was in the movie for more than 20 minutes. Like, that's when she revealed herself to be the killer. We're like, oh, shit, I didn't see this coming. You do see it coming because she just shows up out of nowhere 20 minutes before the movie ends. And then it takes about four (laughs) minutes for you to figure out she's the killer. But I was like, okay, never mind the big twist idea because it's totally not what I remember this movie being. Um, Again, that's my fault, but that's what I had in my head. I was like, why do I not remember her not being in this movie longer? I could have swore she was in this movie longer, but she's not. She's not. And I'll half agree with you that there's no there's no setup when the Annie portion is a setup and it's kind of weird. It's like a, like, it's like a double cold open. Like there's the cold open from the fifties, which tells you nothing. Like you just know that two camp counselors get murdered. That's the best you can tell from that. And, uh, and that summer camps look like they absolutely suck. Like <laughs> it just looks like a miserable experience. Yeah, they're singing Kumbaya. Uh, they're, counselors- they're singing Kumbaya. No one has fun singing Kumbaya. I promise oh. you that. Those are two of the most milquetoast camp counselors, by the way. It's like they, <laughs> it's pretty, everything was, that was going on was very vanilla. And then the camp itself was very dirty. And I was like, fuck all that. I don't want to, I would never go to summer camp. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Um, you get that cold open. So, and, and by the way, and, and uh, what, what's his name? Um, um, I'm never going to remember his name, Victor Miller. You know, he said as much, he goes, yeah, horror movies are supposed to have cold opens. I mean, he so flippantly just threw one in there because it was supposed to be in there. This is how little they were planning. And then they have like a second cold open with Annie. And we talked about that a little bit ago. And that is about the, as much plot as you get. Because the, the, what that part does 
And she learns, okay, they used to call this place Camp Blood that I'm about to go work at. That's weird. And the and and everybody in the town is like, yeah, you should not be going to Camp Blood. That that place is cursed. Like some bad shit happened there in the 50s, and then again in the 60s, and all that shit. Like they 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 there's little bits of dialogue in that setup that say if you go there, bad things happen. And she has this really weird interaction with a truck driver who's a tad inappropriate. <laughs> if I'm being honest, he he unnecessarily helps her into the truck. You know. <laughs> Take that for what you will. And then um, he, he basically lays it out for us like it's bad news there. You go there at your own risk, but I think I think it's bad. So they they get this foreboding. Right. And then he drops her off. She keeps hitchhiking for a little while longer. She gets picked up uh, by somebody in a Jeep and that somebody in a Jeep murders her. I don't remember that. I don't remember <laughs> that it was the person in the Jeep that murdered her. Yeah. I just remember her being in the woods. The person in the Jeep murders her. So then you know, okay, that person in the Jeep is the murderer. Got it. And then cut to now it's just, uh, you know, Brenda and Jack and Marcy and, uh, and, and Steve, who's running this camp. And they're all just setting up and getting ready before the kids come to camp. And then that's like 30 minutes of the movie of them just kind of getting ready and the guys being extra creepy and doing fucked up shit. And you're like, well, that's super inappropriate. Um, and then the killing starts again. And then when the killing starts again, I actually got, I was kind of impressed. I think, I think the movie did start to make like some logical choices. It very logically, it's, I, this never, this, all right, I'm going to back up for a second. This is the movie where everybody goes, oh, this is the movie that said like sex is what gets you killed in horror films. And yes, that's true. But I don't think, and, and especially realizing now how flippant the creators of this movie were, they were putting these characters in these sexual positions not to punish sex and vilify it, but to give them logical reasons for separating. Yeah, they were all they were all separating out to hook up. And so they would go, you know, it's just the adults right now. So it's like, hey, you know, let's, let's hook up. You know, it's, you know while, while there's no kids here, let's go have some fun. So they would that's how they would separate out and how the killer could get to each one of them, even with Ned, who was the odd out and didn't have anybody to hook up with. You know, he sees two two of the counts uh, two of the counselors going to hook up. So he goes to walk off by himself, and he sees somebody going to a shack, and he goes to investigate, and he gets killed. And then two people are hooking up, and then you know afterwards, one of them wants to go freshen up in the bathroom, so they separate. The sex was there to separate them, the the group, because uh, Mrs. Voorhees, by no stretch, could have taken on a group of twenties uh, or nineteen year olds. She couldn't have done it. Yeah. Well, that's so it made that's sense actually, to separate them out. And I do want to give credit where I do want to give credit to this. One thing I noticed in this film that I didn't really notice before, because you, we mentioned it numerous times, the kills are what make this movie, right? Like the kills are really the kills. And then the final 20 minutes are really what make this movie. Um, one thing I didn't remember, and I actually, okay. So first off with Annie, let me just say this, and I'm sorry, there's going to be some Friday the 13th historian out there is going to say, no, you're wrong. This is how they filmed it. But in my eyes, when they filmed the Annie kill scene and we see the knife slit her throat, that 110% does not look like a woman's hand. That 110% looks like a man hand straight out of Seinfeld. It was a man hand. So that made me, that made me laugh right away. Cause I was like, this is not Mrs. Voorhees hand. This is what they, they're trying to throw you off. Cause it is 100% a dude's hand when they slit her throat. I digress. <laughs> what I will say though is what, wrong. I, yeah. what I noticed from then on out that I never really noticed before, when you finally do get the big reveal that Mrs. Voorhees is the killer, every single kill up to that point when she goes to battle with Annie or with uh with um Alice, they're surprise kills. 
none of them are based mm-hmm. upon overpowering or 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 attacking them they're all element of surprise and that's mm-hmm. what you would have to imagine a 50 some odd year old woman with obvious physical disadvantages against a 20 year old guy or even a 20 year old girl to be honest would have if she's just coming straight at them which is what exactly happens when she tries to just kill Annie or I keep saying Annie Alice when she goes after right. Alice at the end Alice fights back and beats her the majority of the time we're cutting her head off. So the yeah. one thing I appreciated, the element that I really did appreciate about this movie was that they actually made every kill the element of surprise. Cause that's the only way Mrs. Voorhees could kill these kids. And I was like, I never picked up on that before, but when I watched it this time, I was like, Oh, that was actually pretty brilliant because when you talk about some of the really like dumb, like dumb errors that horror movies make a lot of times when we talk about, killers or choices that characters make and we all know the tropes and the and the you know just the myriad of stereotypes of horror films that they kind of make fun of and scream because they're true you know you should be running out the door and set up the stairs or you should you know all these different things you're not supposed to do that everyone did in horror films i appreciated that they actually recognized that when they knew mrs Voorhees was the killer is that every kill is with the element of surprise. It's just like you open the door, you get stabbed. Uh, you know, Kevin Bacon gets the the arrow through the neck from underneath the bed. They're not. She's not overexert. She's not overpowering them physically, which I appreciated. That I was like, I never really noticed that little layer. But when I rewatched it this time, I was like, oh, they really did get. They really did get that right because when you realize that it's Mrs. Voorhees, realistic. Because you, Patrick, you and I both know. There is a version of this film where she picks up a 20 year old dude and like stabs him. And you're like, hold on now. <laughs> like how, mm-hmm. how did this 56 year old woman who's maybe five foot three pick up anybody? Yeah. And you know, how would she overpower anybody? Well, guess what? She doesn't. And I actually really appreciated that they, they went that extra step for reality in this film, which, you know, it's a film. It's not really based on reality, but I appreciate they took that extra step. I ne- I had never really noticed that before when I came to the kills, every single kill was element of surprise. This is a surprisingly logical slasher. It's really logical. Like I, I, that was something that that was as fresh as, as, as could be a reveal for me at watching it this time around. I was like, oh, the, the trope of the illogical uh, uh, camper or the illogical teen or 20 something. It's it's only an answer to this stuff. It's not this stuff didn't do that. The, Friday the 13th didn't do that. Friday the 13th, they tried to make everything make as, be, as best sense as they could. It's a very logical movie. No wonder it stands up to the test of time. And then everything that comes after it, including some Friday the 13th sequels, where you go, wow, they, these characters are just idiotic. But the stereotype <laughs> does not come from this movie. Yeah. It doesn't. This movie is very logical. Like all the steps it takes are incredibly logical. And it comes back to something that I've always said about the first four films in Friday the 13th. And and it's backed up by what I was reading in, um, in my research for this is that Sean S. Cunningham and everybody in the first four movies, all the filmmakers in the first four movies were just trying to make a movie first. They weren't trying to capitalize on slashing, even though. Sean did say, just write me a ripoff of Halloween. He was still just trying to make a movie. He wasn't going, what are horror tropes? What are the horror things that need to happen in a horror movie? He wasn't, his brain wasn't working that way. He was just trying to make a movie. So he was making all the logical steps in place. And then every movie after that, up to four, 
was like that. They were just out there trying to make a movie. And I think that's why these movies are so good and they actually stand the test of time. That's why, and, and surprise, I learned on this show that actually part three, 3D, when you watch it in 3D, it was actually pretty good. I always thought it was super stupid. And then I watched it and I was like, actually, I like this movie uh, in, in a lot of ways because, and but I do think it's because they were genuinely just trying to make a movie first. I feel the same way about Halloween. I definitely feel the same way about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I definitely feel the, the same way about uh, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. These were filmmakers trying to make films. You know, um, of all of them, Sean S. Cunningham is, is, the, is the least like a tourist. He's just like, eh, we, we're not curing cancer. I was just making a movie. But he was making a movie. He wasn't trying to to hit horror tropes. And it And it just... It ages better than I ever expected it to age, despite the fact that, you know, it was done low budget and with uh, lesser known actors and, and with a sensibility from a from a different time. That logical that logical uh, uh, framework it makes this one of the this is why it's one of the best slashers that ever was. Yeah, I mean, listen, um, before we get to categories, I will say that. You know, my biggest issues with this film really come in that first hour where we do have a lot of downtime, a lot of time that just drags, where things really don't happen, and they're just injecting things for no real reason just to kind of force the plot along. Not when I say force the plot, they're just trying to add time, really. The the sheriff showing yeah. up, the weirdo, the what's his name, the guy showing up and just like randomly hiding in the closet and telling them, you know, you're all yeah, doomed. Some weird stuff. Like just that, and then, you know, obviously, I mean, then, you know, once we get to like the rainstorm that's when things start happening people start getting killed it felt like like this film could have been condensed into like an hour-long film based on the the just kind of the amount of innate just the, like random things that get tossed in this film that aren't really all that interesting because there isn't a lot of story and this is not me you know spoiling we, we don't do this category for this podcast right now patrick but i'm gonna bring it up for like rewrite of the living dead if i was gonna rewrite this like, again, it's in my memory. And, and I, I want to pay credit to you because you said it to me as well. Um, Mrs. Voorhees being in this film more would have made such a difference. Now, again, I'm not saying that you need to know she's the killer, obviously. But, like, if she had done what I said, where in my head she was, she had killed Annie and then took her place as the cook. And then, you know, she's there and she's omnipresent during this whole time. And then the big reveal that she is the killer. Again, I swear to God, that was in my head that she was in the film longer. I think that would have made a big difference. You know what I mean? That like maybe she told them the story about Jason, but never revealed that it was her son. And that's how Camp Blood got shut down, that kind of stuff, like with the kill the next year and all that kind of stuff. They never found the killer and, you know, Jason was never recovered, however they want to do it. But the there's a lot of chunks of this thing where I was just kind of like, I was just kind of like, like mind numbingly bored at moments. And then it picks up when the kills pick up and the storm happens, which is basically 45 minutes into the movie. That's when it gets really fun. And that's when the kills start. And that's when it turns into your classic prototypical slasher. And then you get the big switch at the end with Mrs. Voorhees being revealed as a killer. And then you get the great chase scene at the end with her and Alice. But up to that point, up until the kills start, I was kind of like, man, this is rough. This is not like, this is not like, this is not like what I thought I remembered it being, but it did again, it improved at the end and really did even out and reminded me why this is it. Now, one thing I want to ask you, Patrick, before we get to categories, we mentioned earlier that this is an outlier in this, in the sense of this is not, this is like every other Friday the 13th movie in terms of camp counselors and people getting killed and creative kills. It sets up for that. 
but Jason doesn't even really show up until the second film. Like there's, I can't think of another film franchise that starts like this. Like the second film is where the actual main character of the franchise shows up. And then every film since then from two on is Jason. You know what I mean? Jason is the killer the entire time, the rest of the time. Um, do you like, I know it's part of Canon. I know obviously it's part of Canon, but do you hold this film in a different regard because it is such a weird outlier that in, I mean, it's not supernatural. There's nothing supernatural about this. It's just a killer. It's a serial killer yeah. who is a, 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 a just a de seriously depressed, saddened mother who's seeking vengeance on anyone and everyone who would dare come to this camp where her son drowned. It's a serial killer story. Really? I mean, that's all it really mm -hmm. is. Um, do you hold this in the same regard or do you kind of have it as an outlier? Like as much as I love Halloween three and I do love Halloween three, I consider it like, I call it Halloween three season of the witch, but I just kind of like, it's not really a Halloween film to me. It is only because it has the title in there, but it's not a how that's probably why I love it so much is because I just like it as a film. I don't really care that it's part of the Halloween family. I don't really put it in that, in that series. How do you judge Friday the 13th? Because it is weird, right? Like it does set things up. It does kind of introduce the characters, but it is unlike ultimately every other film because Jason's not in it. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't look at it as much as an outlier as much as I look at like we got the prequel first. So it didn't end up being a prequel. That's really what Friday and like, you know, completely unwittingly, but in terms of the intentions of the filmmakers, we got the prequel first. So we, we just got the thing in chronological order and then all of a sudden it got crazy. <laughs> it's like, oh, you no, know, he can he can be resurrected from the dead. That actually took a while to happen. It may it may seem like and again, this is like that Mandela effect with people in Friday the 13th. Jason doesn't become a zombie until like part six. He's not he's before that he's alive as best you can tell. He's just fucking really hard to kill. But they they at no point through the first six movies or through, through the first five movies do they imply that he has supernatural powers? They never do that. Um, so I, it's a it's an I, it, when I, I remember when we first started talking about the Friday movies on the on the podcast, we were talking about how weirdly inconsistent they were <laughs> and from movie to movie. Things were changing and lead characters were completely different and all that stuff. And that's true. A lot of things changed because it was the, the franchise was constantly changing hands creatively and on the executive level. It was just changing hands constantly. So it was hard to kind of keep the same through line the whole time. But they were consistent up until part six. That's actually a long time to be kind of carrying the same story for five films. They kept the lore of Jason and his mother the same, but we got the prequel first. I think that's special. And I will back up just a little bit and kind of in its in defense of this because it is my franchise. Um, I, I was, as you were, bored to tears with a lot of this stuff, but... <laughs> the sensibilities of the of the of the theater goers at the time they did not feel the same it was this was a blockbuster movie it made tons and tons of money it made sean s cunningham so rich that he's basically never did done anything else with his career he's tried and truth be told he's never made a successful film outside of this series but but also he never had to try hard because this movie made him very very rich um, it was incredibly successful at the theater. It, it, it opened for a, a small little indie uh, uh, exploitation film. It opened in thousands of theaters and, and did incredible, incredible numbers at the box office, blockbuster kinds of numbers, because the, the audiences of the time were into it. And the filmmakers of the time 
were like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, him and Wes Craven made Last House on the Left, which is almost documentary style. Like if you really watch that movie, it plays like a documentary. It doesn't play like a horror film at all. Well, Sean S. Cunningham was the producer on that film. And then he kind of carried over to this and was like, okay, I'm not going to make that. I'm going to make something else. But they sort of had this weird docu style about them that makes it feel kind of mundane. And yes, I've, 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 I have a, a, a much more uh, complex sensibility for my filmmaking tastes, but I, but concept, uh, but uh, contextually speaking, that movie for the time was not considered boring and mundane and all that stuff. So it's it's like we're looking at a historical artifact and got to go okay yeah at the time they didn't have electronics so that's how they got their rocks off and it worked out just well yeah i will i will i will defend this movie in one way because i remember when my girlfriend saw the exorcist for the first time she saw the exorcist she watched it without me it was a rare occasion i was working or something and she's like i want to watch the exorcist i've never seen it. i was like well i'd like to watch it with you but if you want to watch it go ahead i think i was working one night she comes back in and she's like yeah it was good but it wasn't scary and i was like what what the Exorcist yeah. is terrifying. That movie is one of the greatest horror films of all time. She's like, it was good, but it didn't really scare me. Like, And I was like, and I know we've had this conversation on the podcast before. When you go back and watch films from the 70s and 80s, a lot of times because the effects are different or, you know, you can see things coming easier, they don't affect you the same way. Um, yeah. But we have to remember, just like Night of the Living Dead terrified people when that film came out in the 60s. And then, of course, when Halloween came out in 78, Halloween was the same thing. We saw Halloween in the theater. I took her to see they were doing a re-release of Halloween in the theater. And she watched it. She was like, I liked it. Wasn't scary. And I was like, yeah. man, like this is kind of heartbreaking, but it's just a different <laughs> time because they've re- they've changed horror films and films in general have changed so much over the last 30 or 40 years that what scares audiences now wasn't necessarily what scared them 30 or 40 years ago. So to defend Friday the 13th, um, where we're saying now in 2023, yeah, it's a little boring and kind of like, you know, didn't really go anywhere for about the first hour. That didn't matter in those days. That was still scary for them. Just seeing the point of view of the killer staring at the kids playing on a raft in the middle of the woods in the, in the middle of a lake. And there's the killer. And they're like, do you see something over there? I don't know. Is that somebody over there? That scared people. Like that was like the foreboding sense of dread yeah. of somebody watching you while you're out on a raft in the middle of a lake. To me, I was kind of like, yeah, whatever. But like to them in 1980, it was right. terrifying. So they, they, they got that right. Also real quick before we get to categories, I want to mention you talked about the box office. $550,000 was the budget. It made almost $60 million at the box office. So Sean S. Cunningham is like, pay me, baby. I ain't doing nothing else. And his name is on every movie after that, whether he was involved or not. And it's and, a very lucrative franchise. And he is involved in the Friday the, in the Friday the 13th reboot for television. He is doing that now. So he is going back mm-hmm. to the well again for a TV series, which is a weird one because there's like two different TV series in the work. There's one that's like for Peacock, I think, which is supposed to be like a prequel, but it doesn't involve Jason. And then there's the, another one that does. I can't remember the, the, the exact the exact how it's working, but yeah, there's a Friday the 13th prequel TV series, kind of like Bates Motel-ish that's happening right now that's yeah. in development that I know Sean S. Cunningham is involved with. But with that being said, Patrick, let's get to categories because we got a lot to talk about with Friday the 13th, the original. Let's kick things off as we do each and every week on the show, and that is with best performance. So, Patrick, when you look back at Friday the 13th, the original from 1980, who is your best performance? 
Well, I was, I was like, what am I going to do? Cause these performances were a little rough, <laughs> you know, like I, these were all newer actors and I, and I was reading up on them. They, it was like one of their first movie jobs. Like almost all of them had done like commercials or plays or anything like that, but they hadn't done movies Hold on. again. Are, it's an indie are, film. So are they, you saying, are you saying they were rough? One. <laughs> like that rough? Is that what you're saying? That kind of rough? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they didn't give it like that. Nobody gives it quite like Nicholas Cage. Uh, but uh, but I was like getting a little worried as the movie was going on. I was like, I don't know where there's going to be a best performance in here. Maybe Alice, you know, like she was doing OK. Um, and then Pamela Voorhees shows up. Betsy Palmer is my best performance as Pamela Voorhees because holy shit, that, that it was a big coup for them to get her. And they were looking at names like Meryl Streep and Glenn Close. They were looking at like actors who ended up becoming some of the best actors around and they just kind of couldn't get them. Um, and then they thought, well, what about this Betsy Palmer? Now, Betsy Palmer, almost all of us from a certain generation only know her as Pamela Voorhees. We don't really know her as anything else. Well, to people like Sean S. Cunningham, she was the equivalent of like Katie Couric of like a very wholesome daytime talk show personality person. She had done movies and she had done TVs and she had done plays, but she was sort of known as being an incredibly wholesome person. Imagine it was almost like, I would think it was sort of like, um, what's her name? Uh, the Snoop Dogg's best friend, uh, Mar Martha Stewart. Oh yeah, Martha Stewart. It's almost, like, it's almost like if Martha Stewart showed up in your movie and turned out to be the vicious killer. <laughs> Like that's the equivalent of what it was. And they did that on purpose because they go, no one's going to see that coming. When she comes to the rescue, they're going to be like, oh, that, oh, that's Betsy Palmer, the nice woman. Oh my God, great. thank goodness she's here. Well, about, like you said, about four minutes into her appearing, she starts to make this devious turn. And it was, it was honestly, I was super impressed. Like I know nothing about Betsy Palmer outside of this movie. And I was like, oh, I see it. Like she's a really talented actor from kind of like the, the yesteryear of acting. And she just, this, this psychopathy coming across her voice and the way she looked and the way she would stare off into the distance. Like it got creepy. It got really creepy. And I was like, damn dude. Like for the first time ever, I really appreciated the fact that they had Betsy Palmer and, and she makes the movie. I mean, it, it, without this, you, you wouldn't have had it. If it was just some guy, if it was some guy, you know, a, a greasy mechanic or something, we wouldn't be talking about this movie tonight. We're talking about this movie tonight because of Betsy Palmer's performance as Pamela Voorhees. Yeah. So let me first off say Martha Stewart, um, she did go to prison. So don't doubt that she would shiv a bitch. I'm just saying, Patrick, she, she might, might shiv a you. bitch. She might shiv a bitch. Um, I wanted to go in a different direction because I always like to highlight bet, you know, good performances. And we, we never talk about this beforehand. So I never, you know, you never know who I'm going to pick, but I always try to pick someone different just to give credit where credit's due. And Adrian King, of course, who played Alice deserves all the credit. She became a very famous scream queen from this role. But I couldn't not pick Betsy Palmer because she really does make the movie. When she shows up, the tone of this movie changes entirely. And while I'll be, again, I'll be completely honest, the first hour didn't really keep me all that enthralled. Even though some of the kills were cool, I wasn't like, man, this is amazing. Or this, I can see why this is a seminal slasher film. No, I was kind of like, wow, this is, again, kind of boring. Um 
Last half hour totally changes that. That's when it ratchets up. That's when the adrenaline starts pumping. And when Betsy King comes on screen or when Betsy Palmer comes on screen, um, the film changes entirely. And so she really makes this movie. She is so well done. She is so well acted, but also so damn creepy. And everything she says that you just believe she has completely snapped and gone off the reservation. Like she is not there anymore. And the way she does it in the film is just truly terrifying and yeah she makes this movie i mean listen i would love to sit here and, just, and look it's kevin bacon's i love kevin bacon i'm a big kevin bacon fan i think he's a, a tremendous actor i'm a huge fan of him and uh from all the way from uh a few good men and uh i'm trying to think whatever kevin bad uh, sleepers which is a tremendous movie he's in i love kevin bacon but he's not really good. He's not bad in this movie. He's just kind of like there in this movie. He's just like, oh, yeah, that's Kevin Bacon. Uh, but no, it's Betsy Palmer's movie. It's a Betsy Palmer movie. It is a Betsy Palmer movie. I do want to give a, a honorable mention to Walt Gorney. Walt Gorney is a is rather prolific in the Friday the 13th franchise. He plays Crazy Ralph. Yeah, he is. They've got a death curse. Like it's it's he's that guy. He's Crazy Ralph from the from the town. Uh, Walt Gorney, uh, there's more scenes than I remember. There's a lot of Mandela effect going on with this movie, a lot. <laughs> and one of them is like how good of an actor he actually is. They put him in some weird situations. That wasn't his fault. He's just going by what the script tells him to do that day. But his actual performance in this movie was notable this time around. Yeah, I, I, I do. I I was kind of like with you when he when he first popped up. I was like, hey, there he is. I remember him. And then, yeah, he popped mm -hmm. up a couple more times. And I was just like, oh, yeah, there is Crazy Ralph. So I would I would agree with you there. Um, Speaking of more, one more Mandela effect thing, and it has to do with this performance from Betsy Palmer. Yeah. I never remember from any other version of this movie her mimicking the sound of a boy saying, help me. Do you remember that? I do remember that. That I did remember. That I did. I remember. didn't remember that at all. Okay, I was like, why don't I remember this? Where she pretends to be her son to go help me, help me. Yeah. And the and the psychology behind that is she's mimicking her her son drowning, yeah. asking for help to lure somebody out. I thought it was fucking wicked. Anyway. Yeah, I do remember that. I do remember that. That because everything, everything. Pamela Voorhees related I remember I just stretched it out like I in my head she was in the yeah. film for an hour and so when she didn't show up to the final 20 minutes I was like what am I remembering like why do I not remember this the right way <laughs> because she's so good and like I said if you just gave me like the opening in the last 20 minutes I would still love this movie like I'm not saying the other hour should get cut out and I don't again there's some really cool creative kills we'll get to those in a minute uh, when we get to that category but again the last 20 minutes makes this movie and it's her movie. When she shows up, the, everything changes. And, and I loved it at that point. Like I would go as far as to say, I love this movie in the last 20 minutes. Overall, I wouldn't say I love the whole thing, but I love the last 20 minutes. Cause she makes this movie. It is so damn creepy. So damn creepy. Again, uh, we would not be here today without that performance. Yeah. Speaking of creepy, by the way, Patrick, you know, we are, <laughs> there are notoriously when we get any, any movie that has horny teenagers together, there's inevitably going to be a creepy dude. And was it, it was it never know or not sure. Was it Friday the 13th part four? The one with, um, Crispin Glover. Am I thinking that correctly? I think he was. Yeah. The, the, he has the friend who's making fun of him the entire time for not being able to have sex or whatever. He has like a micro penis or I can't always making fun of him for, <laughs> but he's the creep. He's the creepy friend watching porn by himself down in the basement. You remember what I'm talking about? Part four. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the creepy friend. So 
in part four, there's a creepy one. I know there's a creepy one in part three, and I'm sure there's a creepy one in part two. We'd have to go back and remember who the creepy one was. But in Friday the 13th, the original, who is the creepiest? So who is the creepiest person in this film, Patrick? Let's be clear. There's no creepy person. It's creepy guys. <laughs> like it just is. I remember we we talked about the burning on this uh, pot on on this podcast a, a while ago, which the burning was basically made. I think right before Friday the Thirteenth, right in the same area and everything. It, it, yeah, uh, they, they, creepy- they wrote they wrote it before, but it came out after, so it was a weird right. one. That, like it was like Friday the Thirteenth, like identically the same movie basically, but yeah. it actually came out after, but they wrote it before. Yeah. And and that had it was chock full of creepy guys. There's a creepy guy in this in this I mean they're all the guys in this in this movie are creepy, but there's one that stands above them all. And that is Ned. What the fuck is wrong with Ned? He's a dude's a fucking weirdo. First of all, it's not like like there are other creepy guys in this like Steve, the camp counselor or the the guys running the actual camp. Like he does this weird creepy kind of whispery thing and he's like looking at you and he's doing that thing. Ned is like He's like a man child, like something's wrong with him in that respect. Like he's he's kind of spe- like like he's kind of like all over the place. Like blah, blah, blah. But then he'll do weird shit to get attention, including pretending to drown so he can get mouth to mouth. And then shooting fucking arrows <laughs> at a at a girl who's like standing by a target to get her attention. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, what is wrong with this guy? Like, I like, I, I know that every every woman listening is like, uh, I got like seventeen creepy guy stories. <laughs> like, like they really pack them in in this in this in this uh, in this movie. But Ned, I was like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? It's befitting that Ned got the arrow to the head. Is uh, kind of befitting with his death in this movie. Um, that he <laughs> no, got Ned that. got Ned got the neck slice. Oh, the, who was the, who got the arrows in the face? Who was it was that? Uh, it was I think it was Bill. Bill got Bill the, got the I'm arrows. I'm sorry. Bill. Bill got the arrows to the face. I apologize. Yeah, Bill got a bunch of arrows to the face. Which that death, I don't remember it that way either. But that yeah, was cool. I, I didn't remember that one either. Um, you know what? You said Ned, and I agree. Ned is the creepiest. But I actually am going to go with Steve as the other creepiest, based solely on one scene. And it's the scene at the beginning when he's talking to Alice, when Alice is on the ladder and he's like creepily flirting with her. And it's, and I'm sorry, listen, I don't mean this to offend people out there that only have mustaches, but immediately when you only have like the big, thick mustache and nothing else, and he also has like the really bad haircut, he looks like the guy who would pull up in a van and say, I have candy in here. Would you like to come in my van with no windows? That's what Steve looks like immediately, but it's off-putting. But his interaction with Alice in that scene is so creepy when he's like flirting with her and he's like, are you going to stay the whole summer? Are you going to stay? And I'm just like, he looks like he's 40 for one. And I, and, yeah. and, and, and Alice to, looks about 17. Yeah. Alice looks, and by the way, credit to them for actually casting teenagers who look like teenagers in this film. They do not look 35. Like they're in 90210. <laughs> um, they actually look like they're 19, maybe 20 years old at most. Uh, Steve does not. And so Steve flirting with Alice was rather creepy in the mustache. I'm sorry, man. The, the mustache was doing him no favors. <laughs> He was, he was so creepy and i guess they might have had something going on at some other time because he's like why don't you give me another chance and i was like oh god i don't want to know what chance you gave him <laughs> like this guy fucking gross yeah like and and then there's like you know i mean crazy ralph was kind of creepy the truck driver was definitely creepy uh, put, push her, uh, there's pushing her in the seat when he literally grabbed her ass and pushes her in the seat they're so creepy i rewound it just as i'd be like 
like there had to be a reason he did that. And I, I rewound it and I was like, no, she could have perfectly very, she was already basically in the truck. And then yeah. he just decided to shove her in by touching her ass. And I was like, man, oh man, what the fuck, what the fuck was wrong? Cause I don't, I doubt that was in the script. I think that was improvised. Yeah. I 100% believe in 2023, Steve would be on a registered a list that he would have to introduce himself to his neighbors uh, and probably the truck driver. And, and, and so would Ned, they would 100% be uh, on a Ned, list. Ned would not be allowed near a camp counseling <laughs> situation at yeah. all. Jesus. Yeah. They would Please. all have, they would all have to go around the neighborhood and introduce themselves. You know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah. Not good. Not good. Uh, let's get to best line because the dialogue in this film was at times, good i guess and other times it was rather bad but you know it is dialogue and it is a horror movie this this one feels this film feels authentically 80s it was made in 1980s and some of the dialogue feels very dated now that's not a bad thing because listen i'm the nightmare on elm street guy and there's plenty of dialogue in nightmare on elm street that's dated oh, yeah. as well but this one was like there was a lot of really dated material in this film but patrick you had two best lines so would you set up your first one and by the way we're going in order so you know so we're going in chronological order so your first line and then we'll get to your second favorite line sounds good yeah I, no one who is a fan of 80s horror uh has a stone to throw from their glass house <laughs> a lot of bad lines that come out of the 80s um and the first one uh, so it struck me i was writing vigorously when during this scene uh, uh, a motorcycle cop comes up to the camp to kind of check on them and see what they're up to and they have this absolutely ridiculous conversation that you're about to hear and it's so stupid I had to put it in here but I was like why the fuck is this scene even in the movie it has <laughs> nothing to do with anything in the movie it was driving me nuts well in my research I found out that um, one of the uh, financiers insisted on putting it in the movie they just he had this idea like oh it'll be cool if they have a, a, a scene where a cop uh, shakes them down about smoking dope uh, and therein lies this scene. Yes. Hey, nice play. Keep it smoking, boy. Smoking. Don't smoke. It causes cancer. You know what I mean? Would you just get off a spaceship or something? Colombian gold, man. Grass, hash, the weed. Dig it? Hey, what's he talking about? They don't get smart. Me? I'm as dumb as they come. Hey. Oh, uh, the names for weed was hilarious. You, what was he called? Was it like Colombian Bam Bam? Colombian Gold. Yeah, Colombian Gold weed. Yeah, they also. This is also when you know it's dated. Is later when they're playing uh, strip monopoly, and oh, yeah. I think it's Alice turns to the other girl and she's like, "Do they still have some of that grass? Find that grass." And I was like, "Yeah, this is '80s. No one calls it grass." <laughs> <laughs> like they didn't call it grass when I was a kid in the yeah. 1980s. They didn't call it grass. It was weed. But yeah, Colombian gold, weed, grass. You dig? I was yeah. like, oh my god, what a fucking dog shit scene this is. It's just too funny not to put in there. It was so bad. Um, now my second. Yeah, part two. Part two no, of your favorite line. <laughs> my, my second line actually comes now. Uh, we so often when we everyone talks about uh, this this movie they talk about crazy ralph's first instance of uttering uh, that camp's got a death curse like that's the first th th everybody mentions that line he does it again albeit in a very weird way they for some reason have him hide in the pantry <laughs> and then pop out and, and give this monologue he says it a second time when he does that and I realized that the second time he says it is actually pretty good. And that's why I gave him an honorable mention, honorable mention for best performance uh, for his second utterance, his his second warning to the kids that they are indeed at a cursed camp. Messenger of God, you're doomed if you stay here. 
place is cursed. Cursed. It's got a death curse. Who are you? What do you want? God sent me. Get out of here, man. I got to warn you. You're doomed if you stay. Go. Go. Does it does it strike you weird at all that at certain points during that monologue during that uh, during that um, monologue that he slips into a little bit of Irish? He's like, "Oh, lassie, you got you got to get out of here, lassie." Am I wrong in thinking like there's <laughs> Don't a couple? Don't you be stepping to the end of that <laughs> rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you be touching my lucky charms? Like, does it <laughs> is it just is it just me or does he slip into a little bit of an Irish accent there a couple times? Now that you mention it. Yeah, I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> but yeah, I thought that I just thought that version was better than the than the one that's earlier at the diner. Yeah, no, you're right. It is. It is a little crazier. Also, by the way, if I'm at a camp and someone just pops out of the uh, pops out of the pantry, they're getting hit in the face with a shovel immediately. Like, even though I'm not in a horror movie, you're getting like, do you just pop up like there? You are 100 getting a shovel in the yeah. face. Bong. Yeah. <laughs> just crazy Ralph on the floor. Yeah, well, I, crazy Ralph's got a concussion. We better get the medics out here and then the, I, then the I, movie's over. I came to warn you, Lassie. Bang. <laughs> Shovel to the face. Uh, all right. So my favorite line, of course, comes later in the movie. And this is uh, paying homage to the great uh, Betsy Palmer with her uh, just totally, utterly creepy utterance when she first goes after Alice and she steps outside the cabin. Alice is running away from her. And this is when you realize that uh, she is crazy as a rat in a tin shithouse. Uh, and, and Mrs. Voorhees has, has gone way, way over the line. And this is just one of the creepiest lines in the film when she talks to herself as Jason. Get away, Mommy. Don't let her live. I won't, Jason. I won't. Now, to preface this, my original favorite line, I almost pulled both. My original favorite line was the the diet that was the monologue when she goes on when she talks about the Jason story, which was great rather monologue. creepy, which is a great monologue and it's very creepy. But then I again I knew this was in here. But it hit me a little different this time because it was so utterly creepy when she does the whole killer mm-hmm. mommy, killer, I will, Jason. Like the two voices reminded me so much yeah. of like Psycho and films like that, you know, the, the multiple much. personalities. And I was like, damn, that was really good. So I had to pick that as my favorite line because it was just so creepy when she does it. She does it several times. I was pulled every single time because mm-hmm. she talks to herself a couple of different times. She's like, killer mommy, killer. And it's just, oh, it's, it's, it's so creepy. I think it is the only thing that has always creeped me out about this movie. Yeah. It like, like this movie's never scared me or anything like that. As I just, I was always fascinated and loved watching it, but that part always like gets under my skin. Yeah. It's a good one. All right. Let's talk about best scare. Uh, this is of course, uh, Friday the 13th. There have to be some jump scares in here. It's impossible. Although I do want to what actually, you know, before we get to best, can I mention one other thing before we get to best scare? Sure. Um, we haven't really talked about this yet. I did it in the intro when I did my whole kill, kill, kill. But one of the most iconic parts of this film we haven't even talked about yet is the score by Harry, uh, Man- what is it, Mandra, what is his name? Manfredi? Uh, Man- Manfredini, excuse me. Harry yeah. Manfredini did the score for this film, and it's so iconic. Everyone knows it. If you've never seen a Friday the 13th film, chances are you've heard this score, heard someone going, kill, 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 kill. <laughs> and uh, even in even in uh, Scream 2, when Sarah Michelle Gellar's 
characters on the phone looking around the house in the background. The other girl on the other end of the phone goes, kill, 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 kill. It's so iconic. So I felt like I felt like we had to play a little bit of this iconic score tonight for uh, Harry Mandrafini. It was just a, it's just a, a incredible score and so iconic. And also, and he'll be the first to admit this, much like Halloween, totally ripped off. He totally ripped off this, this score. He just added his own little flair to it. We all know that. Kill, kill, kill. Yeah. Kill, kill. You know, he's saying kill, 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 mom, mom, mom. He's saying mom, like mom, kill them. Yeah. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Um, that was added at the last, the very last minute. They added that like minutes before they were going to screen it for the first time. That's that like, that was such a last minute addition. They just wanted to put a little something in it. Now the score itself, if you notice, it actually only comes on when you see the killer why did they do that there's a a little movie you may have heard of called jaws yeah whenever the, whenever the shark approached now famously they couldn't show the shark because it was a disaster to do a mechanical shark in salt water who would have guessed it so they used a lot of point of view to to be the eyes of the shark as it stalked you and that music would signify that the shark was there well that's exactly what they did here and if you go back and notice next time you guys watch this movie you will only hear music when the killer is present and only when they're present. And you will know that Harry Mandrafini 100% admits he ripped off Jaws and other films when he mm-hmm. did the score because much like yeah, you can class- hear Jaws yeah, in that. With the classic, clearly. with the very classic with the dun 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 the classic mm-hmm. Jaws score. One hundred percent. You hear it in the in you hear it in the Friday the Thirteenth theme. It's just everyone knows this because of the kill 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 mama. Yeah. Iconic. It's one of, the, one of the most iconic. Super yeah. iconic. Yeah. I mean, and now, I even feel like those, those strings, those stabbing, Dan it, Dan it, Dan it, Dan it. Like that's a very, that's a staple of horror. And you really get it in this movie there. I mean, obviously I think psycho had a lot of it too and stuff like that, but this is one of those movies where it's like, you didn't have a horror movie in the 1980s without a sound like that. Yeah. I would argue that, you know, of all the outside of Halloween, the theme for Halloween is more iconic. I think we all know that that's one of the most, mm-hmm. that's probably, that's up there with, Star Wars. My kids know like, that. Yeah, yeah, like one of the, like two, or, one of the two or three most famous scores in in movie history. Period. Not horror movies, just movie history. Right. I would say Friday the Thirteenth is top five at worst. I mean, everyone knows Kill Kill Kill. I mean, everyone knows that. Yeah. Um, even yeah, if you've never sure. seen the movie, you know Kill 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 Kill. So, yeah, you know. Oh, it's that Jason guy. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. <laughs> it I mean, turns just, out it was the mom. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't Jason at all, assholes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Jason's mother was the killer in the first movie. Thank you, Billy Loomis or <laughs> Stu Mocker, whoever said that in line. Uh, let's talk about best scare. As we mentioned earlier, uh, getting back to that, I had to mention the score. Uh, best scare, Patrick, and Friday the 13th. What was your favorite scare? So I want to take umbrage with one thing, as you were saying earlier, that, um, you know, you were kind of bored with the movie overall. And I get it because a lot of the story stuff is not in there. But um, I was absolutely fascinated 
with the cinematography of this movie. Uh, some of it, especially in the early going of the movie, is, is kind of a ripoff of Halloween. But I absolutely loved what the camera operator was doing. And I saw in this movie the real archetype for every slasher that was coming out in the 80s and even all the way up to like Scream. It, the cinematography in this movie is what made so much of it scary because most of the time they just have to use have to use the camera to tell the story to tell the story of the killer stalking these kids so my best scare is not even really like a jump scare it's none of that it's actually kind of a dreadful moment and that's when brenda gets the floodlights now it, it to, brenda's kind of wandering the uh the the, the campgrounds and when the floodlights hit her, I just loved how creepy that that the chase of it all was. It had a very classic feel to it. And then I realized like, oh, yeah, because this movie like like really did it very well. They executed that very well, where I think a, even Texas Chainsaw, which I love, um, you know, was sort of more docu style. And uh, I, I would say, you know, Halloween is probably the closest thing to this. And everybody loves the cinematography in Halloween. The cinematography in here is just as good and and creates that sense of dread. And, and that Brenda moment when the floodlights hit her, you just know something bad's about to happen. And so it was a different kind of scare this time around. Yeah. Credit where credit's due. Barry Abrams was the cinematographer in this film. Sadly, he passed away in 2009 and he only actually did a couple more films past Friday the 13th. He did two other films. That he was a cinematographer on beyond this only worked on about seven films total in his career. He did a little bit of acting on the side as well. Appeared in about four different films on there. But yeah, Barry Abrams sadly died in 2009. Also, of course, sadly, uh, Betsy Palmer left us. Uh, a few years ago as well. Uh, but yeah, Barry Abrams was his name, and he only did two other films after this. He did two more films after Friday the 13th and never did cinematography again. And, and I agree, it's incredible cinematography um, in this film. It's really, really well done. Um, so I'm going full generic, Patrick. I'm not going to lie. The best scare is the one that everyone didn't see coming, which is Jason popping out of the lake. Um I'd be remiss without mentioning that one because for all the other scares, and there are there are some pretty decent jump scares in there. Even again for a 1980s movie or a 1980 yeah. movie, um, there are some pretty decent jump scares in here. But it's the Jason out of the water. It's the one you don't see coming. It's the one that no one saw coming, and it's creepy. Mm -hmm. And also the Jason itself is so creepy. They really doll, you know, with what uh, Tom Savini did to do the makeup and effects on that Jason with making it all just creepy and all you know dysmorphic and 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 um uh decayed from being in the water for what we have to assume at this point has been 30 years or whatever 25 years um very creepy and very well done and it's the one you don't see coming and it's hard not to pick that one because i would imagine 95 percent of friday the 13th anyone who's seen friday the 13th would say that's the scariest scene Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, like I said earlier, it, it got my wife. She was she jumped out of her seat. She couldn't believe what she was seeing. It freaked her the fuck out. Um, and then I'll give it uh, a, a, a special shout out to another scene, which and I, I didn't realize this, but it was like, um, where, who is the, what was the, which I'm trying to find the name of the person who actually did it. Um, but one of the girls, I think it was Brenda. Oh, yeah. I, let's see. I think it might have been Brenda who actually gets thrown through the window. Oh, yeah. OK, that, yeah. that that throwing through the window thing is is like a staple of Friday the 13th. I had no idea. I just did not remember that it happened in the very first movie. And it's a legitimate jump scare. It's like, oh, you don't see it coming. And then she gets she just gets thrown through the window and surprises the shit out of Alice and, and 
they, uh, the, the actress, Adrian, Adrian King, who played Alice said, yeah, they didn't warn me that they were going to throw her through the window. So you see me freaking out. That's me freaking out that a body just came through the window. <laughs> well done. Way, way to go. Way to go, Sean Cunningham on that one. Um, <laughs> let's talk about best gore or best kill in this movie, uh, because they're kind of, you know, they're, they're one in the same yeah. in this film, the kill, the kills and the gore are kind of, you know, hand in hand. So Patrick, what was your best kill slash gore in, uh, in Friday the 13th? Ultimately, I went with um, this the very classic uh, ending of this movie. And it's something that even since I was a kid, like it just it's one of these images that <laughs> shockingly or, or, or in a morbid way has always played out in my head ever since I was young. Watching Alice behead Mrs. Voorhees is unforgettable. That's a great kill. It's great gore. Um, it just just the, the look on 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 betsy palmer's face as she sees that the machete's coming for her the swing and then you cut back and the head goes flying and then tom savini's hands come in <laughs> because it's his hands doubling for for betsy palmer and then he's reaching with his big hairy paws for his own <laughs> head missing head and i was like damn it's still fucking good and a uh, bonus damon um i'm watching that scene and then uh, about a, a minute later, my youngest son, who's six years old, comes down and goes, Dad, that was just a dream, right? <laughs> he, he watched her get beheaded. Oh. And it's like, oh, look at that. The cycle repeating itself. As my six-year-old son is now watching Pamela Voorhees get beheaded. And this is the start of his horror, uh, lo his love for horror right here, watching her get beheaded. And I was like, oh, yeah, definitely just a dream. Yeah, the beheading, the beheading is definitely cool. And that was one of the cooler beheadings in, in cinema at that point. And credit to the legend of Tom Savini for that practical effect. And I really I, I had kind of I always remember the beheading. I don't always remember the clawing for the neck, like when it happens, like the reaction, almost like the chicken with the head cut off where it's still like flopping yeah. around, like the, the hands grabbing as as the body falls made it that much better. I kind of forgot about that moment, yes. but that was really cool. Um, so I took notes on this film, Patrick, and, uh, you know, you, you kind of, you, you famously taught me how you take notes is you make little notes, but you also like kind of give like nicknames to the notes. So you remember what they are and where they are. So you're not writing like, you know, three or four lines of, of, of note taking during a film. You just make little notations so you can go back and remember what they are. I called this scene, the Baconator. And that is the scene <laughs> where an arrow goes through Kevin Bacon's throat up close, personal. And you see the blood just start pouring out of his neck. It's an iconic scene. Of course, the hand comes up, grabs his head. The arrow goes up from under the bed. Um, there's a great, uh, I want to say in, in, in Search of Darkness, which is an incredible documentary, they have three of them on Shutter. Hey, Shutter, um, and they're oh, out Shutter. there, and they're out there. And I think in that first one, they do Friday the Thirteenth. They talk about it. and They have Sean Cunningham, and they have Tom Savini, and they have a couple of the actors. Uh, Kane Hodder's in there as well, um, even though he's not in that film. And then uh, I think later on they do a Tom Savini like little vignette, like a little five minute thing on just him. And he talks about the effects in Friday the 13th when he did that. And he talked about how he did the the, the arrow where he made the false neck for, for Kevin Bacon. And I can't remember if that's the one or there was a different one where they had to do it in reverse where they couldn't get it to look right coming out. So they had to do it coming in and they reversed the film. I, I want to say it's the arrow where they just, it just didn't look right coming through the skin. So they had to pull it out. 
and that's how they reverse it. I can't remember if that's the one or there's another one, but um, that's a I think really, it might be another one. There's a really cool effect there with that though, with him doing the the arrow through yeah. the neck, and and, and then, you know they oh, talked about great. and they talked about you know Kevin Bacon is like you know laying in the bed and they have a body double and the neck double and it's really cool. So I love that scene. I call it the Baconator when uh, when Kevin Bacon gets his uh, his neck taken out by the arrow, and it's uh, again probably next to the beheading, probably the most iconic kill in this franchise or in the in the first film, I should say. I, I would say it is an iconic kill in the franchise and in horror in general, but it really set the tone. I think that Kevin Bacon kill is why um, the Friday the 13th movies are known for their kills. It was like, okay, we did the arrow through the throat last time. And by the way, in 1980, it absolutely like shocked the shit out of audiences. They did not see that coming because it was a great misdirect. Actually, in that moment, uh, he he and the girl are having sex. She's done. She takes off. And then um, you see uh, Ned's body is actually hiding above him. So all your attention is being directed upwards because you're like, oh, shit, that body's over him and he doesn't even realize it. So you're looking at your everything. All the, the audience's attention is going upward. And the kill comes from below. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's an incredible misdirect. And then the effect is incredible. It still looks pretty damn good today. You can kind of tell that it's like, you know, latex or whatever. But again, pretty damn good considering. And again, that Tom Savini ingenuity of just like, I want to I come up with this crazy kill that looks super, super practical. That looks like it's really happening. That sets a precedent. And from then on, Friday the 13th was known for its incredible creative kills. And I think it's because of the arrow in the neck it is it is i do want to make one one kind of crude comment here patrick i'm sorry i have to do this but uh sex on a bunk bed man that just doesn't work no one wants to have sex on the lower bunk of a bunk bed no one does i promise you that i promise you that no one wants to do that i know one i, I call what, top bunk yeah you do not want to have sex in the bottom bunk of a bunk bed i'm sorry you just don't just throwing <laughs> that out there throwing that out there uh <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about is this gonna work we actually did this category uh for uh evil dead the 2013 evil dead and we had some fun with it and so we're going to kind of bring it back this is a patrick special uh can you explain what it means and, and, and then your choice which i do want to talk about your choice because it is rather interesting because i <laughs> saw your picks before i watched it so i was watching for this moment and then it totally made sense so explain what it is and then what your is this gonna work moment is yeah, so I came up with this category uh, on Evil Dead because um, there is a pattern in slashers and horror movies, which is you put unskilled people in a situation and they kind of have to like figure their way out of it. So they just they start acting. They start they start they start just trying to be uh, tr trying to engineer something on the fly. And I look at it and I go, I don't think that's going to work. I don't know if you're thinking this all the way through. Now, now shit has officially hit the fan at this point in the movie. And Alice is on the run from a killer. And so she runs into a cabin. And then out of nowhere, she grabs this rope, which again, I'm like, I don't remember this happening. Oh, she tosses it over a beam. And I was like, what the fuck is she doing? Then she fastens it, fashions that rope to the door handle of the door and then like cinches it up super quick and then ties it. So I guess like the person can't open the door from the outside. So I was like, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> I guess, I think, I'm not sure. Um, and then she starts to pile stuff on. And then at some point she's like throwing stuff and it's just like falling and not even piling on. I was like, I don't think that's going to do what you think it's going to do. So I okay. So you mentioned this, and I paid attention because I totally didn't remember this when you put it in the category. I was like, "Where in the hell does that happen?" When you when I saw so when I watched the movie, I was like, "Oh, okay." 
First off, credit to whoever wrote this into the script that it's a door that opens to the outside. So they actually engineered a way for her to block the door by with a rope, because typically you think of them blocking a door with like, a, you know, the dresser drawers or, or, or boxes or, or they a, chair. Tilt a chair under yeah, the thing. And, and because the door opens to the inside, the doors on the on the cabins go to the outside. So you can't block them that way because the door could just open. So the fact that she actually engineered a rope to tie off the door so it can't open from the outside. I was like, you know what? That's actually kind of genius. Now, here's where the problem comes in. She just completely ruins it because the door is blocked and roped off, and then the, the Jeep pulls up with Mrs. Voorhees, and she just unties everything. So the whole rope trick means nothing. <laughs> like, she went through all this to tie off and, like, block the rope, block the door, and it doesn't even come into play because she takes it down herself. <laughs> yeah. Let me do the most elaborate door block I could think of. And then just undo it all and just let let the killer right in. Yeah, I was just like, this doesn't strike me as the best of ideas here. You're going to like, it's yeah. one of those things we always talk about this in horror films. If you introduce it, you better use it, right? Like if you introduce some mm-hmm. prop or something, you better use it. I know this is a very minor one, but you really went to some work to engineer a way to block the door to keep it from being opened. And you don't even get to use it. Like two seconds later, she's like, oh shit, let me undo this and run outside to the <laughs> random person showing up in a Jeep. She sets up a Rue Goldberg machine in 30 seconds and yeah. then undoes it all to let the killer in. Yeah. So my, I, my, my is this going to work? It goes on a slightly – I'm cheating here a little bit, Patrick, but I have to bring this up because this is like the logic – like, again, I praise this movie for the logic of the kills because, as I said, they're very surprise, you know, moment, uh, element of surprise kills, which I appreciate it when you realize that it's a 50-odd, 50-some-odd-year-old woman – killing teenagers or, or young people that would overpower her. So it's not a, it's not a test of physical, uh, physical strength. It's just, you know, element of surprise, but here's where the logic goes flying right the fuck out the window, uh, with, with, with this film, because, uh, when, Alice starts battling with, with Mrs. Voorhees, she knocks her out like four times. Now for one, for one, I'm assuming Mrs. Voorhees is going to have one hell of a concussion at this point after getting literally knocked unconscious four different times. I understand you're running for your life. I do. I, I do. I sympathize with that. Okay. But as soon as you know that she's killed all your friends and she's trying to kill you, maybe when you knock her down with the frying pan in the pantry, maybe just give a couple more swipes on the old head and then she doesn't get up again. That to me was like one of the plot devices that really bugged me. Now, all they had to do to fix it was when she hit her to have her fall down, but not go unconscious. She goes unconscious like three times during this fight where she just goes completely out. And I'm like, uh, this doesn't really make sense that this lady would just go completely unconscious and then nothing would happen. Uh, yeah. So I read up on this. It took them two days to shoot the fight scene between, uh, Alice and, and Pamela, Voorhees. Um, you know why it took so long? It's a relatively short fight. They didn't have any stunt players. <laughs> this is a short, this is a, this is a independent feature. They barely had any money to do this. It is, it is Alice and Pamela actually choreographing. The, they didn't have a stunt coordinator. 
They they just tried to figure out the fight themselves. And at times it looks that way. <laughs> it looks like a 98 pound, 17 year old actor and a 50 something year old woman who has never fought a day in her life and lives in, in the Upper West Side of New York City, uh, get into a fight. Like, that's what it looks like. <laughs> it, it's a very odd, it, it's, it's not the best fight I've ever seen. And it's because they have absolutely no prowess. No one on no one on set knew what they were doing. They all just tried to kind of engineer this. And you're right. <laughs> Mrs. Voorhees gets knocked out so many times. She's like, ah, and she like falls over. And you're like, okay, that should be it, right? Yeah, no, like, it's not. It's not it. She yeah. gets back up. Like, she's got some severe brain damage, but like the third time she gets knocked out unconscious inside like four minutes. Like, you know, at some point you're not getting up again. I'm just saying, like, that was yeah, that was the, the beheading that, was a she did her favor. It was after the frying pan. I was like, she knocked her out again. Like, this is the third time you knocked her out. Like, at this point, she ain't getting up again. Like, she is not getting up. So, yeah, take a couple more swipes to the frying pan. If you think she's not dead, like, just go ahead and finish her off there. Uh, All right. Let's get into a big one here. Now, this is a a really controversial uh, category you brought for us here, Patrick. And that is ranking the OGs. The four iconic slash. Now, we rank in the films of the franchises. Just just the first film okay. because and the reason I the reason I came up with this category is we have already covered the original Texas Chainsaw, the original Halloween, and the original Nightmare on Elm Street. We had not done the original Friday the thirteenth. Tonight marks the night where we actually did it. So I was like, we have the first four originals of these franchises. So let's rank these first movies and 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 see where we come out. And also, I'm assuming by doing this category, we're ranking the four films, not what happens after. Just these four films. Just these Based films. on four films. Not or first four. The four first films. Nothing else beyond this, correct? Nothing okay. else. Just Texas, Texas Chainsaw 74, Halloween 78, uh, Friday the 13th in 80, and Freddy in 84. That's right. it. No other movies. We're not ranking the franchise. All right. So do you want me to go first or you want to go first? I'd like you to go first. All right. So starting out at number four, uh, I'm just going to say it. It's Friday the 13th. Um, now, I that being said, I still enjoyed this movie, especially the last 20 minutes. There's a lot of filler in here, though. Um, but I do enjoy the ending, and I really do enjoy the, the the Mrs. Voorhees of it all. I think that is a great twist and a great introduction of what, at the time, was just a great serial killer. And also, you know, since um, since Norma Bates in Halloween, Norma Bates being Norman Bates, uh, in Psycho, kind of like the first time you suspect it's a woman as a killer. It's a nice little twist that it's a woman as a yeah. killer. So Friday the 13th at number four. And number three, I go Halloween. Um, the original Halloween is iconic. And while I admit that film is not nearly as scary now as it was then, I understood a lot of the monumental, um, intro, the, a lot of the, a lot of the things that were done for the first time ever in that film, the point of view, the music, um, you know, really, I mean, I know this isn't the first final girl. I understand that, but it's kind of like the definition of what becomes a final girl with Laurie Strode. Um, so that's number three for me. I've always liked Halloween. I also like the introduction of the mask with the killer. I always like that. Just this kind of like nameless, faceless killing machine is kind of cool. So that's number three for me. Number two, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of the greatest films of all time, not just horror films, just an incredible film all the way around, terrifying, unnerving, 
great performances. Gunnar Hansen, of course, all time great. The entire film is really well done. And of course, number one for me, no surprise, is Nightmare on Elm Street, the original and Nightmare on Elm Street. It is. You're kidding. Yeah, I know. It is. It is. <laughs> it is. It is a scary film. It, it, it is. The, and also. To, to give credit where credit is due, Nightmare on Elm Street, it came after all of these. So it had the chance to learn from its predecessors to figure out what was good and what was bad. And also introduce a different kind of slasher being the dream killer, the dream demon Freddy Krueger, where it's not you're living in real times. You're not dealing with a serial killer. You're not dealing with a family of cannibals. You're not dealing with a, you know, a kid who's just mentally broken so to speak for michael myers because again michael myers wasn't really supernatural in that first film either none of these were supernatural except for freddy freddy was the supernatural killer so they had the advantage of coming in fourth and taking the good and the bad from all these other films and making their own films so for me now Elm street from 1984 is number one all right, fair enough. I'm totally shocked that that came in number one for you I know, that's so I weird know, that i know that you, you didn't see that one coming i know not at all. Um, I bet you know what my number four is. It's Halloween. And I know that's going to drive a lot of people nuts, but I've never been impressed with the original Halloween, much like your girlfriend. I was just like, this movie never really got me. The kills are weak. I'm sorry, they are. Michael Myers is cool and interesting, but even then he still wasn't like fully formed and as scary as I think he could have been. Uh, and he drives a car, which but that drives, I don't know why that just drives me absolutely nuts. Just seeing him roll around in a station wagon. There's nothing like, like this, nothing scary about that at all. And so I just, to me, it's, it's, I've never understood that movie specifically. There's plenty of great Halloween movies, but that one specifically has never gotten me at all. So it's, it ranks, it ranks uh, at the very bottom for me at number four. Um, number three would be Friday the 13th, the original. Um, it's, it, it, there's a lot about this movie that I like, and we talked about it at length, but yeah, the beginning's kind of odd and weird. Again, for the time, it's actually totally fine. It's so logical. It's so very logical. I'm just, I'm so impressed at how logical it is. Um, so like it, it's, I'm more impressed with it now. It's like a very high three for me um, in terms of these movies. Um, number two would be Nightmare on Elm Street because it's incredibly inventive. Um, Freddy is scary in that movie, which I think is important. Um, and, and it's just, it's stuff like you've never seen. I mean, like if the kills in Friday the 13th were, were something new and people hadn't seen before, you hadn't seen anything once you saw what was going on in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, just truly ghastly, scary stuff happening in that. And that leaves number one, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I do believe is the scariest film that I've ever uh, watched. I think to me, I'm, I've, uh, even now when I watched it for this podcast, it still scared me. I still left it shaken and and disturbed there's something it's it's that film is absolutely lightning in a bottle um if we were ranking franchises guess which would be dead last texas chainsaw <laughs> yeah. like they have the it's the worst franchise of all four of them it just it just has a terrible terrible track record but that first movie is one of the greatest movies you will ever see and i i i, I dare anyone to say otherwise um it's just, I, I can't believe every time i watch it how fucking frightening it is as a movie and and it just 
I don't know. It's it's and it inspired, by the way, everybody that came after it, every single one of them. Yeah. So I would say like the, the hard part about ranking this is like Nightmare on Elm Street and Texas Chainsaw are two of my all time favorites. Like the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my all time favorite films, period. Like not horror, just films. And so it's kind of hard. Like, yeah, I guess I put it number two because I do have a little bit more affection, of course, for Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm not going to lie about that. Um, I also do love the performances in Nightmare on Elm Street. I think I think the performances kind of take that film a little higher for me with Heather Langenkamp kills it. John Saxon's brilliant in that film. Johnny Depp, very early, but also very good in that film. And then, of course, Amanda Wiss, I believe is her name, who played Tina. Great. It was a great performance. That kill is iconic. So that raises it just slightly above Texas Chainsaw. But again, like Texas Chainsaw is, is almost a perfect film. It's almost like it's almost like one in one A. Like, I really hate to put one at two and one at one. Um, but I'm kind of how I, I feel about Freddy and, and Jason or and, and Friday the 13th and, and I'm not and I'm not really I'm not like when I put Halloween at three like I'm kind of like you know it's it's the reason it's at three for me is just because of a couple of iconic things the point of view you know which is a, a revolutionary tactic that he put in that film and then I know it's such a it, it may be a stupid reason to rank it but I it does it really does set the tone for that movie is the score the score in Halloween is so good I've just put on, I have the vinyl record I've just put on the score to Halloween and listen to it because it's so good. Like, it's just a really, we really good it. score. Um, and it's just, again, yeah, the kids I requested here. Yeah. Like if you take, if you took the kills from Friday the 13th and put them in Halloween together, they would be kind of a perfect film, right? Like you think about like, there's a better yeah. story in Halloween, better performances in Halloween, better plot, obviously in Halloween. Uh, but then clearly better kills in Friday the 13th. You know what I mean? So, you kind of put them together, they would be pretty perfect, but they both have flaws, whereas I don't really find a lot of flaws in Nightmare on Elm Street, and I certainly don't find many flaws in Friday and Texas Chainsaw. So these four films, it's like kind of two and two to me. You know what I mean? Like two are separated, yeah. like all-time classics, and two are good but flawed. If, if I, And again, I that like both, but they're both flawed. Which ending do you prefer, Freddy or Texas Chainsaw? Oh, man. Um, yeah, buddy. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, um, I prefer Texas Chainsaw, the original ending yeah, to that it's, one. It's um, such an amazing ending, dude. Um, the I ending, went to the, the new bedroom. The ending oh, to Nightmare on Elm Street is kind of weird, obviously. We understand it's that. Wacky. <laughs> um, if you end it with Nancy, you know, just beating Freddy and it kind of ends right there and, and that. But, I mean, I do like that it kind of goes back into a dream sequence. It's just kind of weird, but it's just a very like non-ending ending like they're not saying that it's over but it's over and it's just a very odd but it's not bad it's just a very odd ending texas chainsaw is iconic i mean you know leatherface saws his own so leg good. the girl gets away the hitchhiker gets, and blood <laughs> the hitchhiker and gets blasted the by the truck you know like the whole thing yeah oh, texas dude. chainsaw is one of the best endings ever yeah and i remember i was at the new beverly and i watched it on on 35 millimeter film and I was like front row watching it. And I remember just that that final ending where, where Leatherface is swinging the chainsaw in the in the morning sun and then it cuts to black and you could feel the energy in the room. They were like, fuck, <laughs> like it just it knocks you on your ass like it's 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 number one. It just I, I think it just is like I, there's nothing that we can do about it. Obviously, we have our preferences and all that stuff. But as a movie, as a singular movie. Texas Chainsaw to me stands head head and heads and tails above the rest, and it's not even my favorite franchise. It's just fuck that movie's amazing. Yeah, well, it's, and it's again, and not to get way off on a tangent here, but it's the reason why, like, one of my 
possibly my favorite horror film of all time. It's hard for me to rank because it kind of jumps around from year to year what I like. But The Devil's Rejects is probably my favorite film of all time, favorite horror film of all time. And Rob Zombie has said flat out, I ripped off Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, he's never hidden that fact. And the ending of that movie, the very uh, cinematic ending of the Firefly Clan driving into a police force with uh, with uh, uh, Leonard Skinner playing you know over the mm-hmm. over the over the car radio and you don't really know you just hear gunfire and the screen goes black you have no idea what happens kind of rem- again it's very reminiscent of texas chainsaw where leatherface saws his own leg the hitchhiker gets blasted with the truck the girl climbs into a truck to get away and that's it like you don't there's no other finality to it you no just resolution it, yeah. no resolution just fades to black and that's it it's just the end of that story and uh yeah it's it's iconic and and again uh and I, i'll give credit where credit is due like the ending of the ending of friday the 13th with mrs Voorhees being beheaded is better to me than loomis finally shooting michael myers what saves halloween then is when the scene that again much like the jason scene in friday the 13th where jason pops out of the water and grabs alice they didn't intend on michael myers being gone like that was added yeah. at the, they did not that was not originally in the movie where michael myers was just missing when they look out in the lawn he's gone and that sets up the sequel um they didn't that wasn't necessarily going to be the original part of the film but again michael just getting shot a bunch of times and falling out of a window was kind of anticlimactic for what at that point was a great chase scene with Lori. Uh, whereas Fr- Friday the 13th clearly has a better ending with the beheading of Mrs. Voorhees and then, of course, Jason popping out of the water. Yeah, if I was going to rank the endings of these movies, Texas, Friday the 13th, Halloween, and then I would put Nightmare on Elm Street last because it's just that ending is so wacky. <laughs> it is. It is very weird. I'll give it's you that. It's wacky. <laughs> it is very weird. It is. I would. I would put. I would probably go Nightmare and then Halloween just because again the Halloween was kind of like just shooting him like you know just like you yeah, know, it's, it's, like, it's weird. I mean it's it makes sense, but yeah. it's, it's, it's just the battle. It's, not the, it's it kind of anticlimactic. You kind you kind of want. I mean I understand like the entire thing has been the cat and mouse between Doctor Loomis and Michael Myers, but you spend so much of the film with him just chasing him, and then you get to see Lori with him the whole time you're kind of like eh, i don't know just the gunshot i don't know, you know like i have a revision real quick i know we're going off on a tangent but that was the point of this category yeah i got a revision to the ending of halloween go instead dr loomis shoots Corey's mom <laughs> so Corey's never born <laughs> and we don't ever get halloween ends all right now that gets made halloween's number one the franchise is number one and uh it is officially the greatest film of all time if he just act, he just offs Corey's mom and Corey's never born into the world uh that is the best film of all time oh no who did i shoot yeah that's uh mrs Corey. oh shit yeah cut to cut to credit also a a real a a funny similarity (laughs) between uh all of the uh, three of those films of course uh never on street they got john saxon who was a well-known actor from the bruce lee films not you know not you know he was definitely the you know the star so to speak of that film they didn't no one else was really named johnny depp became the name but he wasn't a name at that point friday the 13th got betsy palmer the rest of the cast was completely unknowns they did no one had ever heard of any of these people of course we all know kevin bacon went on to become the biggest star by a mile of anyone in the in this film um and halloween was all no names and donald pleasance they got him and literally had him for like a week 
they had to film all his scenes in like six days because they only had him for six mm-hmm. days of a month long shoot. And then, of course, as we all know, Jamie Lee Curtis goes on to become a huge star. But at the time, she had done nothing. So, like, it's kind yeah, of funny. No, no, These no, no. Those three films, Texas Chainsaw is different. It never really produced, you know, a, a big iconic star. I mean, Gunnar Hansen's very beloved in the horror community. But let's be honest, no one from that film really went on to do anything else. Um in no. Friday, Nightmare, and Halloween, they all had three iconic actors brought in to play smaller parts, and then all three produced huge megastars, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Bacon, and Johnny Depp. Kind of funny. They all had that yeah. in, uh, in, in, in relation to each other. That's why we talked about the four OGs tonight, because those are important movies. Yes. All right. Let's talk our next category about remake or sequel. Uh, obviously, we're not doing leave it alone. Our normal category is uh, sequel, remake. remake, sequel, or leave it alone, meaning don't do anything else with this film. It's classic. But we can't really do that because it's Friday the 13th. It's already been sequelized and remade a million times. So we're kind of taking a little different take on this. So remake or sequel, Friday the 13th. What would you do, Patrick? Golly, I'm actually torn. I'm really torn because a remake of this movie, I'm talking just the first movie with the idea of the mom being the killer is very enticing and I would like to see it. But really what I probably want to see is a direct sequel to this movie. Just like we did the Halloween in 2018 was a direct sequel to the original Halloween. I might want to see, you know, a Friday the 13th, 2024 where it's a direct sequel to what happened in the events of this movie. And I wouldn't jump it all the way to modern times. I would jump it to probably like 1983 or something. I I would still set it in the eighties, but I would want to see a sequel of this movie. I think, I think that's where I'm going to stand for now is that I want to see a direct sequel to this movie. Would it be a Jason movie or would it not be a Jason? It would be a Jason movie. It would definitely be a Jason movie. Not unlike Friday the 13th part two, which is what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Friday the 13th part two is another one. I know we reviewed that on here. That's another one that has an incredible ending. Uh, the rest of the movie is, you know, it is what it is. It's not great, but the ending's incredible with, you know, that, good that I, 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 would, I would say otherwise. Oh, I think no, no, Friday no, I'm 13th saying, part like, two is pretty good. I, I, no, I'm saying it's pretty good. I'm saying, but the ending is iconic. The ending with, oh, yeah. you know, with her putting yeah. on the, on the Vor- on Mrs. Vorhees sweater and everything that whole, you know how much I love that scene. I absolutely adore that scene. Yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah. one of my favorites of the entire franchise. Um, yeah, no. So for me, I'm going to say remake and, and, and again, I'm just going to go with my Mandela effect of what I've thought this entire time, what this movie was, which is Mrs. Vorhees being in the majority of them i could have swore she was in more of this movie when she doesn't show when she didn't show up till the final 20 minutes when i watched this film again i was like did i have like a brain fart or did i just clearly not watch this movie like the five or six times i've seen it and i know i've seen it five or six times that i do not remember her just being in the last 20 minutes i'm not kidding i was sitting there waiting for her to show up like when does she show up like i know she shows up and she tell i knew i knew she showed up and told the story about the, the camp counselors having sex and the kid drowning in my head it happened earlier in the film and then it's later that she reveals that she was the mother of the kid who drowned that was what i didn't remember so that's it just remake it with that is remake it where she's in more of the movie and it's a bigger surprise you know the bigger twist. that's what again i had a category ready to go big twist i could have swore it was a twist in this movie and it wasn't because she just kind of shows up and she's the killer like three minutes into it um so that would be my remake is just remake this film in modern times 
Everything else can stay the same. Hopefully leave out some of the dumb stuff like the cops showing up and accusing them of using, you know, wacky tobacco or whatever he calls it. Wacky uh, tobacco, Columbia <laughs> goes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and just inject Mrs. Voorhees in more of the film. And again, obviously you've got to make it in a way that it's not obvious that she's the killer, but that way when yeah. it is big, it is a big reveal. It is a big twist when you're like, oh shit, it is her, which I know would be impossible mm-hmm. to do because if you go see a Friday the 13th movie, you're going to know it's Mrs. Voorhees. But I'm saying like, you know, hypothetically in my own head, you do it with that. She's just in an hour of the film instead of only 20 minutes. That would be my biggest, my biggest flaw of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th- I think either one of those is actually very enticing to me. Um, I know, I think we're going to get in the next few years, year, in the next few years here, if I could get that word out, I do believe we will be seeing another Friday the 13th movie. I think it's coming soon. Well, I know the one they're doing called Camp Crystal Lake is a prequel and it's based around Mrs. Voorhees. Um, they yeah. are doing that, that a TV show. That is a TV show. So they are doing something. Yeah. I don't know how it's going to go, but they are doing something, which that one's kind of, although I will say they did Bates Motel as a TV show based on Psycho. And that show, I don't know if you ever watched that show, Patrick, but it was really good. It was yeah, really, really, nothing but great I was shocked. Like I went in, like, I don't know how they're going to do this as a TV show lasting several seasons. And it was incredibly well done. It would end up being one of my favorite shows of that era. Um, I recapped it all the way through for my website. I loved it. It was a really really good show um so again right in my head i'm like how do you redo friday the 13th with just mrs Voorhees and it's a season like i don't like does she just kill counselors like every season is that what we're going to be doing but again they have an idea roll with it and maybe it'll be great i have no idea like maybe it'll be awesome so um we'll see um, our next category, of course, this has become probably my favorite category we do each and every week here on the show, Patrick, and that is Can We Survive This Horror Film? So this is the category where Patrick and I put ourselves, we inject ourselves as camp counselors in Friday the 13th. We've arrived at Camp Crystal Lake. Are you and I going to survive this horror film? So, Patrick, are you surviving the original Friday the 13th? Hell yeah, I'm surviving. I mean, come on. I mean, first of all, I'm probably not getting laid, <laughs> but I'm not going to because I'm not going to be creepy like all these other guys who are just out to get laid. Now, fair enough. Everybody wants to get laid. No, no problem there. But I'm not going to go about it the way these guys did. So I'm probably going to be having my head on a swivel all the time anyway. And I don't think a 50 something year old woman is going to sneak up on me. I just don't. I just don't see that happening. And uh, if I ended up in the Alice situation where I had to go toe to toe with Pamela. Uh, sorry, lady, you're, you're getting fucked up like I'm a brown belt in Brazilian jiu jitsu. You're not gonna make it out of this we're not gonna need a frying pan to knock you out <laughs> yeah you get you knock her unconscious three times i think she's gonna be done for yeah. um okay i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna bust out a weird flex here patrick i'm gonna throw one at you here so here's here's, here's why i'm not surviving this horror film i'm not surviving Ooh. this yeah because because you're super horny no <laughs> when i was 18 years old when i was actually i was 17 years old when i was 17 years old after my senior high school my best friend at the time his family invited me on a camping trip and we drove across the United States and we went camping in Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and Montana. We camped in Yellowstone. We camped in the Badlands in South Dakota. We did like a whole like five state tour and camped the whole way. We were two and a half week tour camping the entire time. One of the most amazing trips of my life. Got to see stuff. I went to Yellowstone. I, I saw sites I'll probably never see again.
again in my lifetime. But there was one campsite in South Dakota, Patrick, where old Damon at age 17 hooked up with a girl on the campsite. She was from Michigan. I was from Ohio. She was there with her parents. She was my age. We both literally just graduated high school, and we were literally the same kind of trip. Or we went with our, I went with my friend's uh, parents, and, and she went with her parents. But we were both there, and... Uh, you know, some, some things happen. Some things happen on the old <laughs> camp trail. So by that logic, Patrick, I am making it out alive because I was having sex. So, yeah, I'm done for. Plus, here's the other thing that's going to doom me. Um, and I mean this in no offense to you or whatever. In terms of stature, I'm six foot three. I'm a big dude. Mm-hmm. If Mrs. Voorhees is going to target either one of us first, she's targeting me. She needs to get me out of the way because she knows I'm the biggest threat. Because if she doesn't get me with one swipe, I ain't going down. So, you know, she's going to catch me with my girl from Michigan and she's going to catch me on a guard. And I'm getting an arrow through the neck. So, yes, Damon, Damon, once upon a time, got him a little something at a campsite, legitimately at a campsite. I'm not making it out of this movie. I had sex. <laughs> I uh, I'm done for. And that and that concludes uh, another edition of Damon's Sex Corner. <laughs> I, I would love to see you and Betsy Palmer recreate the exact same, the late great Betsy Palmer recreate that exact same fight. Scene. <laughs> just, you stand literally like a foot and a half taller than her. Just, <laughs> just see the two of you go at it and see her uh, grab you on the beach and like pound your head into the sand. <laughs> I would yeah. pay to see it. I was waiting for this category though, Patrick, because I actually had a campground story. I legitimately had a campsite <laughs> story saved up for this moment, and it's the only time I'll ever get to use it but i had to throw it out there so there's the reason i'm not saying there's the reason i'm not surviving i i I can't i did i did the one thing you're not supposed to do patrick you did it i did did it it and you're a target that's it they got you exactly she's in and again i'm going to be the logical target i'm the biggest guy they're going to take me out quick um all right (laughs) last category of course is it scary so patrick 1980 friday the 13th is it scary in 1980, this would scare the shit out of you for sure. Like it's got it's got really some very dynamic kills. Some of the most dynamic kills of that entire era. We named the big four. Uh, Freddie hadn't come along yet, so you hadn't seen anything crazy at all up to that point at that level, like uh, in the major movie theater chains. So I think this scared the shit out of people in 1980 for sure. Um, and it has gore and it has, you know, dread and stalking. And again, the great camera work that is indicative of all the good horror films that came after it. Um, so all that, all that, all those elements are there to make it a scary movie. Uh, and for me personally, no, it's not keeping me up at night. But when I when I think of Betsy Palmer saying "Kill her, mommy, kill her," it still kind of fucks me up a little bit. It's yeah. still kind of weird. It's still kind of creepy. When I see the headless body reaching for the for the neck, it's still kind of creepy. No, I'm not really like scared of it, but it gets me in a way that a lot of horror movies don't get me. Yeah, I will. I'll actually agree with you that it is it is scary in that regard. The kills are pretty awesome. Um, I think. There's a couple, a lot of, the, uh, some, several of the kills happen off screen, which is a little disappointing in that regard. Like, I wish we had actually seen them. Like, we see Ned, yeah. you know, in the bunk bed. We don't really see, like, there's a couple and we see the aftermath, but we don't see it. And again, yeah, I'm, sure that's, and I'm sure that's budgetary. Like, they couldn't show it. They could just show the aftermath. There's some really cool gore and effects, uh, thanks to the great Tom Savini. But again, that's just minor quibbles. But again, the ending, the last 20 minutes are great. Uh, outside of Mrs. Voorhees being knocked unconscious four times and somehow continually 
need to get up. Uh, the whole, you know, killer mommy, killer. That thing is very creepy. Um, a couple, you know, the, the Kevin Baconator kill is pretty creepy and, and well done. Good jump scare. And of course, the, the Jason popping out of the lake is a good jump scare. So, uh, and again, the beheading, the beheading in and of itself is, is crazy because you just don't expect the heroine to lop the head off of the killer. Like, that is an unexpected moment uh, in that film. So, yeah, I would say for that of the time, um, it is scary. And again, is it really scary? No, not by 2023 standards. This, to me, the Friday the 13th and, and the Friday the 13th franchise at large, much like Nightmare on Elm Street for me, Patrick, has become like a comfort movie. Because they reshow, yeah. oh, yeah. they reshow the Friday the Thirteenth franchise movies all the time on like Showtime, and late at night sometimes I'll just pop it on and leave it on, and it's like a comfort movie. I'll I'll read on my phone, I'll text people, I'll do a little work, and I have it on the background. And I see, I look up, and there's a cool kill. Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street, they they're not scary to me. They're comfort movies, which is twisted, and people are going to say you need to say a psychiatrist, and I would say you're probably not wrong, but. That's what these films are to me. They're comfort films. Like, I just love them. So is it scary? Yes, it is scary. I will give it credit. It is actually a pretty effectively scary movie. For me personally, no, uh, but I'm also twisted. So, you know, take that for what you will. I love it. I love it. No, I, th I think for, you know, it's cool to, to look back on these classics and be able to say, yeah, they are scary. You know, do, do they shiver me timbers? No, they don't. But <laughs> yeah. they are they are scary movies, like, and they are the reason uh, 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 a podcast like Rewinded Living Dead exists because these foundational movies, they hold up. And I, I was shocked to realize that uh, the, the, the original film and my favorite franchise actually does hold up. Yeah, it is. It is scary. Like I said, outside of, again, I mean, you mentioned the big four um, Friday Nightmare on Elm Street is legitimately scary. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is legitimately scary and also extremely uncomfortable. And I mean that in the best way possible. And Friday the 13th is legitimately scary moments. The one kind of outlier is Halloween. I don't really find Halloween scary, but I understand, again, why it's so iconic. I do get that part of sure. it. It's just not really a scary film to me. Um, but again, like yeah. I said, maybe in 1978 it was, because I think I still think Rosemary's Baby and uh, Exorcist are terrifying, and most people watching those in 2023 would be like, what are you talking about? They're not scary at all. Um, <laughs> Jaws. I Jaws is like my ultimate comfort movie. I watch Jaws I for the hell. I think Jaws is scary. And Jaws doesn't scare i love jaws is is top three movie for me all time but it's a comfort movie it doesn't scare me at all but i freaking love that movie but it terrifies some people oh yeah i live next to an ocean so yeah, yeah it scares the shit out of me because yeah. i'm like ah he's out there <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i mean there's a reason there's a reason i don't willingly go in the ocean patrick just because i'm smart <laughs> enough to know there is a there is a there is a jaws out there um yeah so uh, I was not meant for the ocean. All right, folks, uh, that is our podcast. We appreciate everyone tuning in each and every week. Make sure you check us out on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts. Of course, you can find us on iHeartRadio, and you can also find us over on our on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. And, of course, you can also find us over on our new YouTube channel. Just search Rewind of the Living Dead, and you'll find us over there. Please subscribe. We're trying to build our subscriber base over there, so please 
go uh, watch those and you can actually see our faces as we react to these movies and you can say man they are built for radio but you can still watch and listen from the uh, from the YouTube channel uh, as always if you got questions comments movies you'd like us to review never hesitate to hit us up you can send us an email at rotlivingdead at gmail.com that's rot livingdead at gmail.com or find us on any of our social media channels just search rewind of the living dead we are on Twitter Facebook and Instagram and you can also find us on our own personal social media channels I am at Damon Martin and you are at director Patrick want to say a big thank you as always for everyone tuning in I feel like we got to go out with the Friday the 13th movie uh, music move excuse me score I should say music <laughs> from the movie if I get the words out uh, big thank you as always for everyone tuning in to rewind of the living dead we'll see you next week thanks for tuning in peace 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 peace